Do you remember that classic movie, Miss Congeniality? Gracie Lou plays uh, FBI. I should put that a different way. Sandra Bullock plays Gracie Lou, who is an undercover FBI agent who has uh, participated or is in participating in this uh, beauty pageant because they've learned of a terrorist plot that's going to take place here. And so she goes undercover, and she, at her time on the stage, is asked this question. What's the one most important thing our society needs? Now, this question was asked of all the contestants leading up to her time on the stage, and they all answered in various ways. World peace. But when Gracie Liu, this undercover FBI agent, was asked this question, what is the one most important thing our society needs? She said, that would be harsher punishment for parole violators. And the stunned look on the host's face was matched only by the silence of the audience as they tried to process what she just said. And in that moment of, of crickets sounding, she seeks to recover that awkward moment and says, and world peace. And our audience leaps to their feet and they're applauding, just wonderful answer. That's, that's what everyone wants is world peace, right? If you were to be asked that question, what is the one most important thing that our society needs? How would you answer that question? Imagine if you could pose that question to God. What do you think he might say? And someone says, I'm not even sure that God cares. I mean, have you seen the state of our world? And have you ever wrestled with that? Does God care? What, is, what does God think? Is he just watching us from a distance? I have good news for you. In Jesus, we're going to see an answer to this question. It's not posed to him as such, but his answer fleshes out what we most desperately need. And so we're going to call our study today a lament for the city. And we're going to see Jesus being informed of a terrorist plot on his own life. And we're going to see how Jesus responds. And in that response, we learn a great deal about who Jesus believes that he is and what he has to offer to this world. And how we should respond as well. So let's just pause for a moment and ask the Lord to teach us this day as we open these ancient documents that tell us about the life of Jesus. Lord in heaven, would you meet us here this day? We live in a world that is in such disarray, and everywhere we look, we see evidence of the need for world peace. And yet we see that the more we kind of struggle with that, the more it seems to elude our grasp. Many of us long for personal peace in our own lives. And we wonder what you're up to. Do you love us? Do you care for us? Are you for us? Do you move towards us? Would you help us as we open these ancient documents that tell us about the life of Jesus? And in this particular moment in his journey toward Jerusalem, Help us to understand what he has to say, to flesh out the implications of it for our own lives. And may you meet us this day, whether we come in here deeply discouraged or jaded or maybe even cynical, or whether we come in here full of faith and confidence, firm in the things that we have learned about the gospel, or whether we come in here somewhere in between those two places. Would you meet us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're picking this up in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. And this is what Luke tells us. 
At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, that is to Jesus, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. This is an interesting encounter between Jesus and the Pharisees. We've already learned in the Gospel of Luke that the Pharisees do not like Jesus at all. They've already begun plotting his downfall. So it's kind of odd that they would come to Jesus and tell him that King Herod wants to kill him. What's going on here? Are they trying to get Jesus off his track toward Jerusalem and maybe to go back to Galilee? We don't know. We're just simply told that they're telling him that King Herod wants to take him out. And I think if we're tuned into what's going on in the Gospels, this in a sense should send a shiver down our spine because we know that King Herod doesn't care about human life. We already know of the time when John the Baptist confronted him. And in the wake of that confrontation, he had the head of John the Baptist taken off. So now when the Pharisees come and tell Jesus that King Herod wants to take you out as well, we wonder what Jesus would do in response. How is he going to respond to this clear and present danger? Should he go into hiding? Should he lay low for a little bit? This is what we learn. Verse 32, and he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. What an interesting response. Jesus doesn't go into hiding, but rather he's sending a message back to Herod through the Pharisees. He says, tell this fox. What if he use that word fox? I'm not sure. We can kind of speculate. Foxes are predatory animals. They're sly and clever and set traps and lying waiting. So maybe that's what is behind that, that phrase fox. But Jesus says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures. And we've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke, right? Jesus does miracles left and right. And each one of these miracles, whether it's a casting out of, of dark forces or whether it's a healing of a person in some kind of dire situation, all of these are examples of Jesus setting something to right that is out of whack. It's a healing of what has been broken as well as a preview of coming attractions. So I think when Jesus sends this message back, to King Herod, telling him, I cast out demons. I cure diseases. He, in a sense, is saying, there is a power at work in me that you could only dream of having. So he says, behold, I cast out demons, perform cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my course. This is an interesting phrase or grouping of words, right? I'm going to do what I want to do today and tomorrow, and then on the third day, I finish my course. And no doubt Herod would be like, what is he talking about there? Maybe even his disciples weren't too sure there. But in using this word, the third day, Jesus is foreshadowing his greatest work to come, which is escaping the powers of death. In another place in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, for example, Jesus says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. 
I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus is not in the slightest bit concerned with any threat that Herod could have. Herod has no power over him apart from it being granted by the Father. And so Jesus is on his way, trusting himself to his Father. And for Christians through the centuries who've reflected on this, there's been great encouragement that the sovereignty of God over all of our lives means that our times are in God's hands. I love what the missionary Henry Martin once said, I am immortal until God's work for me to do is done. The Lord reigns. And Jesus didn't say this exactly, but this is exactly what's behind his challenging message back to Herod. Herod doesn't reign over Jesus' life. The Lord reigns. Verse 33, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. Here Jesus says, I must go on my way. And you see here a sense of, of holy obligation, a charge or a mandate that's been laid on the, on the shoulders of Jesus. And throughout the Gospels, we see him talking about this sense of purpose. He says he has come to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many, to take away the sin of the world. Jesus is a man on a mission. And so he says, nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish apart from Jerusalem. That's an interesting phrase. A prophet should not perish apart from Jerusalem. In bringing this up, Jesus is bringing up some of the dark past of his own people. People who had been set apart to be a light to the world. A city on a hill. They had their own skeletons and their own dark secrets. And God would send prophets to call them back to seek to restore them to sanity. And over and over again, prophets were met by violence, not unlike what King Herod would do. Verse 34, Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Can you, can you see the ache in the voice of Jesus, or can you hear it? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You can almost hear him say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. There's an important point we need to, to get in understanding this. Israel was called into existence to be the light to the nations through whom God would bring worldwide blessing. Shalom. World peace. And Jerusalem was supposed to be the heart of God's rescue. But over and over again, instead of being a light to the nations, she became an example to the nations of how to pursue their own self-interest. There's this interesting place in the book of Nehemiah which describes the rebuilding of Jerusalem after it had been sacked and, and the, the priests, the Levites, had assembled Israel, what was left of Israel, for a solemn assembly. And in this solemn assembly, they led the people in prayer. And this is what they said about their forefathers. 
They were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. The people at the time of Jesus were listening to what Jesus had to say. And they were intrigued and they were interested. But if Jesus is going to be the Messiah, he has to do certain things to be legit in their minds. We might summarize it like this. Make Israel great again. This is the sentiment that the people at the time of Jesus embraced. Because what they wanted in a Messiah was someone who would go to Jerusalem and would overthrow Rome. Set up the kingdom of God. Establish Israel as supreme among the nations. And so they were itching for a fight with Rome. And Jesus is offering an alternative path. A path of peace. A path of shalom. A path that would result in world peace. If only his people would embrace it. And so he says to them, how often... Would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing? A beautiful image of Jesus casting himself as as a mother hen seeking to, to gather her brood under her wings for protection. And in doing so, he's he's triggering in the minds of his audience words that they would have known, that they would have used in worship. For example, from the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 57. Have mercy on me, O God, have mercy on me. For in you my soul takes refuge. I take refuge in the shadow of your wings until disaster has passed. Or how about from Psalm 64? Because you are my help, I will sing in the shadow of your wings. So when Jesus says, I have longed to gather you, as a hen would gather her brood under her wings, Jesus is evoking imagery that they would have been sure of. Imagery that had been used to describe God himself, Jesus now takes upon himself and says, I am willing to gather you, but you are not willing. Interesting language. Again, it it echoes language that is found throughout the Hebrew scriptures of a God who desires peace and reconciliation with his people, but a people who are recalcitrant, who is hardened to the message. For example, in Ezekiel 33, As I live, declares the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Here God is speaking to his own people. Not the nations out there that Israel would have said were wicked, but to this own nation and its hardness of heart, the one that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. God pleads with them. It's echoed in the New Testament as well. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Here the Apostle Paul speaks of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. We talked last week in our study together about how God has provided a sure and certain way into the kingdom of God. It is through the door of Jesus Christ. And God desires all people to be saved, to enter through that door, we're told. 
So you see, Jesus is coming, and he's lamenting over Jerusalem. He's not really worried about death threats from Herod. He's more preoccupied about the condition of the people that he loves. And he laments over Jerusalem as they reject his message. N.T. Wright, in his commentary, put it like this. Israel's greatest crisis is coming upon her. And he's offering an urgent summons to repent, to come his kingdom way, his way of peace. This is the only way of avoiding the disaster which will otherwise follow her persistent rebellion. So Jesus says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Hear the ache in his voice. Hear how far she has fallen from what she was called to be. You know, in the book of Psalms, there's this place in Psalm chapter 2. This is a coronation psalm that they would sing when a new king ascended to the throne of Israel. And they would say, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And what was true of the nations at large at that time is true of Israel at the time of Jesus. They want to cast off what Jesus is trying to set upon them. So he says to them, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem. And then in verse 35 he says, Behold, your house is left to you desolate. Your house is left forsaken. What does he mean by that? What what does he mean by the house? Well, Israel itself was known as the house of God. God God came and, and set up a shop in the midst of her, so to speak. That's what the tabernacle was about, and that's what the temple was about. If you would have asked anyone living at the time of Jesus, what is the house of Israel? They would have said, oh, that's in Jerusalem. That's that's where the temple is. And yet Jesus, in lamenting over Jerusalem and her desire to be on a warpath with Rome, rejects what he has to offer. A little bit later in the Gospel of Luke, we're going to see Jesus saying these words. While some... This is how Luke sets it up. While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. When did this happen? A mere generation after Jesus. When Rome surrounded Jerusalem, the emperor Vespian sent his son Titus to lay siege to the city. And they surrounded the city and starved it out. And Josephus, a Jewish man working for the Roman government, writing histories, said in his Jewish wars that some 500 people a day sought to escape And when they escaped through the city gates, the soldiers were waiting and nailed them to the cross. And he said, so thick were the crosses around Jerusalem, you couldn't even walk. Some 1.1 million people, according to Josephus, died in the sack of Jerusalem. Do you see why Jesus was lamenting? For what they wanted. They wanted war. They wanted a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. They thought their deepest problem was political, not spiritual. And Jesus laments 
over their spiritual condition, which led them to pick a fight with Rome. Jesus says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is a phrase from Psalm 118. Again, another psalm where they would, they would sing to the king, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus says, you will not see me, Jerusalem, until you say these words. And there's a sense in which these words were said to Jesus when he entered Jerusalem. They still had hopes that he would be the conquering Messiah who through blood and violence would establish world peace. But as he turned in different directions than what they wanted, they said, crucify him, crucify him. And yet, nevertheless, the promise still stands, both for Israel and for any who hear the summons again. You will not see him until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So why does Luke record these heavy words from Jesus? Well, he's interested in presenting to you this man from Nazareth, his teachings, his heart, his miracles, and what was most dear to him, teaching about the kingdom of God, the one sure thing that would bring about world peace. You see, Jesus did not come to bless our small ambitions for our own little self-interested kingdoms, but rather to set up something far, far more glorious, the kingdom of God, where justice and righteousness and worldwide peace reign supreme. We could put it like this. The kingdom of God where Jesus is hailed as the Prince of Peace, is the one most important thing our world desperately needs. So Luke presents Jesus and his lament for Jerusalem to help us to see that. So just a couple of points, three exactly, on application. How might we apply what we've learned so far? Well, let me suggest that we ought to join with Jesus in a lament for ourselves. If Jesus lamented over a city that wanted to do things on its own terms, that wanted to live according to its own desires. Can we see in Jerusalem maybe an echo of our own lives and our insistence to want to live for ourselves and our own agenda, to seek out our own kingdoms, our own personal peace, come what may? So when I say we ought to join with Jesus in a limit for ourselves, I'm saying in another sense, that's how the Christian life begins. With lament. When we see Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who is also a friend of sinners, willing to speak hard words to us, willing to lament over people like us, willing to go to the cross for folks like us, then that should cause lament in our own lives. So let me ask you the question, or let me ask you to ask yourself this question Do I desire the King and His kingdom? Just like the time of Jesus, these people had an option to say yes to Jesus, so we do as well. And, and what a Savior to say yes to. One who's so full of love, who's so full of mercy and grace, just like we sung about a while ago. Shouldn't we embrace one as glorious as this? Can we say to Jesus, Blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord, who comes with blessing in his hands. 
We're going to sing in just a few moments the hymn, Man of Sorrows. And we're going to say these words together. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus laid. Silent as he stood accused, beaten, mocked, and scorned. Bowing to the Father's will, he took a crown of thorns. Sent of heaven, God's own Son, to purchase and redeem and reconcile the very ones who nailed him to that tree. Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out over me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. You see, my friends, when we lament over ourselves and realize that it was our sin that nailed Jesus to that tree, and we see that through that, God brings about our salvation, that lament ends up in joy and shouts of hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. So that's our first point of application. Let's join with Jesus in a lament for ourselves. But here's the second point. Let's join with Jesus in a lament for our city. This city that we live in, it's no longer Bryan and College Station. It's now joined together, right? It's Bryan College Station. It's not Jerusalem. So far, we're not killing prophets and pastors, and that's a good thing. But I wonder if we can look at our city and look at it with the eyes of Jesus and see a city that is bent on pursuing its own agendas and has its own idolatries and has its own ways of living for itself. It has so very little room for Jesus. I'm thinking of the time when Paul, the apostle, made his way throughout the Roman Empire. And he stopped off in Athens. And we're told that while he was waiting for some friends, something rose within him. And this is how Luke, in his second part of the Gospel of Luke, which is known as the Book of Acts, describes it. He says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogues and with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. As Paul looked around this great city, something rose within him, something was provoked within him to see people enslaved to a life apart from God. And he was compelled to reason with them. And we're told that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? But others says he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And indeed he was, preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. He was compelled to tell this great city of Athens about the Lord Jesus Christ. And he would say to them these words, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people, everywhere to repent that is to turn back to God because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead Paul's heart was overwhelmed as he saw people living a life apart from God and so he was compelled to tell those people precious people created in the image of God enslaved to a life apart from God. He was compelled to tell them the good news of Jesus. So I wonder, my friends, if our lament for our city of Bryan College Station 
could lead us to pray for her, could lead us to long to see more and more people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Could it compel us to tell people about his grace? Here's the the third point of application. Let's join with Jesus in a lament for our world. As Jesus lamented for Jerusalem, filled with people, created in the image of God, he was lamenting because he knew what they were called to be, the light to the world, the hope of the nations. And so when we look at our world and we see it filled with violence, when we see places in the world where dictators like Herod, the Tetrarch, think so cheaply of life that it's so disposable, when we see our own nation where gun violence every week takes out more and more innocent people, can we lament for the state of our world that does so desperately want world peace but has no idea about how to bring it about? And I think when we lament for our world, we join with Jesus in his heart's desire, which is so wonderfully portrayed in these words that he has given us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying he wants world peace, but it's connected to the kingdom of God. It doesn't come from taking up arms and slaying people. It comes through words of peace about Jesus. See, my friends, as Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out. This is mine. This belongs to me. And so, until that day when Jesus returns and sets up that peaceable kingdom, let's join and lament for the world. But let's remember the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, patient towards everyone, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So my friends, the next time you're in a beauty pageant or hanging out with some friends around dinner and drinks or maybe just engaging in banter at the water cooler and someone asks you the question, what's the one most important thing our society needs? You will know how to answer them, right? That would be Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And as no doubt there might be some shocked expressions, maybe silence meeting you, you could, you could redeem that moment by adding and world peace, knowing that world peace is connected to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. That was a little bit cheesy, wasn't it? But you're going to remember it. Mercy Hill Church, may you be a people who know both how to lament and how to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.